So the fact I've been through those mental health challenges and managed to come back and finish university, and the fact that I'd lost my job and my training, but then gone and taken ownership and decided to do that myself. So I think, first of all, if you've been through other challenges and managed to take ownership of those and be accountable to yourself, it helps you when you face bigger challenges in the future. And I mean, we all, we all, when we face a real challenge, have to go through that initial phase of those negative emotions, the grief, the frustration, the sadness and the loss, because that's the human experience. But for some people, they stay in those negative emotions because it's quite comfortable to stay in your suffering, to be there when people are helping you. Because as soon as you start to take that step to get better, people will also come on that journey with you to get better. But if you don't take that first step, the first bit of action to do it, then people will just continue to help you where you are. And that's quite easy to just stay there. You are listening to the Startup Playground. show where I invite entrepreneurs, startup founders, and game changers to talk about their success stories, learn from their mistakes, and hear about their interesting experiences. Hello everybody, I hope you are doing great. My name is Elvis and uh, this is uh, another episode of Weekly and Casual Distancing Talks. And on this episode, I've been joined by Lee Chambers, who is a well-being consultant, environmental psychologist, and the founder of Essentialized Workplace Wellbeing. And for the 10 past years, he's been focusing on well-being and performance in local government, uh, corporate businesses, and in elite sports. And he has brought his experience and qualifications with the aim to impact the well-being of different individuals and businesses and with that being said i've loved you to join me in the conversation and understand how through different set of changes in our workplace we can increase our performance productivity and actually willingness to be at work so i hope you're gonna enjoy this episode hey lee Hey, Elvis, how are you doing? I'm doing good. It's, I'm even mistaken in what day today. I think it's Thursday, right? Today. With all, this Thursday, yeah. with all this quarantine, I'm losing the sense of what the day and time it is, but now we know. So so how how your day been so far? Yeah, it's been good. It's now two o'clock in the afternoon in the UK, and I've been had a really busy morning with clients, calls, and looking after my children, first thing. And yeah, I'm having a... I'm having an interesting time. It's definitely time to innovate and be creative. But yeah, it's that definite element of our normal workplace and schooling routine being slightly out of uh, out of sync, and that means that you, I mean, you're second guessing yourself occasionally, like what day it is. But I think hopefully soon we'll be back to uh, back into a way of doing things that we used to. In the normal routine of our lifestyles, right? Yeah, well, I think it might possibly change up a little bit. But for me, having two children, a big part of my routine is what school day is it and what kit do they need and what books do they need and that kind of thing. And now we've actually lost that because we're homeschooling them. I'm having to actually think, 
and make sure I know what day it is every time I get up in the morning. Okay. I, I noticed that you have been also participating in another podcast. Uh, if I if I knew or if I if I'm wrong, I listened to this this morning before I popped in the conversation with you. It's really lovely to hear your love story, life story. But uh, I would like to hear more, of course. So maybe you could tell me basically to me and to listeners who are you and uh, what is essentialized. Yeah, so I'm, I'm Lee Chambers and I live in Preston in the UK. I'm 34 and I have all the joys of being 35 tomorrow. So I'll be having some kind of lockdown birthday party with my children. Uh, so yeah, I'm an environmental psychologist and a wellbeing consultant. And I set up Essentialize about a year ago, which has two different sections, a coaching side for small business owners and entrepreneurs to help them find their own personal growth and direction while they're growing the business to make sure they both grow as much as each other. Because in so many ways, your business will only grow as much as you grow. So that mm -hmm. works around helping them look at the direction they want to take personally, the legacy they want, how to get more energy by optimizing their sleeping, the nutrition, the movement, looking at the mindset and the habits and how they can build better routines for them outside of the work and looking at what beliefs might be holding them back. And we also have a workplace well-being section where we look at the environmental psychology of workspaces and workplaces. We also look at health awareness and bringing that to employees and helping leadership and management teams to communicate better with their employees and have more of a culture of care, a more conscious way of looking at things and actually looking how they can use the business as a vehicle to help society, customers, collaborators, employees, investors, and just the world at large. So basically, so basically you're helping like the, the well-being of the company, like the, the cultural and the, the vision side rather than uh, how to develop the business plan and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so it's kind of tying that in to the business processes. Mm -hmm. so it's very difficult to go into a business and say, right, you need to do this, you need to do this. Because businesses already have a structure and a set of processes. So it's looking at how we build well-being advancement and cultural change into finance, into marketing, into human resources, and into the structures that are already there. But in that way, it becomes measurable, it becomes easier to plan, and it starts to embed internally because those processes are already in place. So it's about building it into those processes and gradually changing the culture from the top, from the employee teams at the side, and for onboarding of new talent and in education of people coming through. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. So maybe before we move into an understanding uh, everything about you and how you're helping other businesses, maybe you could tell me why you chose to pursue the, the journey of entrepreneur, basically. Yeah, so I had, a, I had a relatively good childhood in the north of the UK. Uh, it was always one of those where my mum and dad worked really hard to make sure we had a roof over our heads and food on the table and a few presents at Christmas. Um, and I was quite clever when I was younger, if not sometimes a little bit misbehaving um, when I should have been <laughs> keeping myself sensible. Uh, but you can excuse that because that's childhood. Uh, but I was the first one in my extended family to go to university. I'd always had an interest in entrepreneurship. I'd been the one selling my mum's used 
ornaments and things like that on the end of the street when I was seven with my friend. And I actually set up a small Amiga video game company when I was 12 and was posting their mail order from my bedroom. So I'd always had that kind of consideration. Uh, but by the time I actually got through university and went through some mental health challenges in the second year, uh, I actually then decided to go into the corporate world. And that was after I'd put a business plan at the end of university to a business advisor and he said, probably go and have a career first. It's probably not for you, this particular business you're looking to go into. Uh, so I actually did initially take that advice, but it was 2007. So I went into corporate finance looking to be a financial advisor, got onto the graduate scheme, six months in and suddenly the credit crunch hits and lots of people above me have been made redundant. I get pulled in and told that my financial advisory qualifications, they weren't willing to pay for them anymore. So I was like, man, that's a bit of a, that's not great. A bit of a bummer. Yeah, and I was kind of looking and thinking, that's the kind of path that I started looking at. And all of a sudden that's been taken away. But it didn't really matter because a week after I actually lost the job and was made redundant. Mm -hmm. So that really made me think, right, okay, so these have been taken away by a big corporation. My plan is in pieces. So what can I do to actually take back control of that? So I set up a video game business from my bedroom. So as you can imagine, I'd moved back in my parents after university into the smallest bedroom. And I it literally had space for a bed. And that was about it. But I had a bed on one side and a wall full of video games on the other. As I started the business initially, um, reselling from wholesalers on Amazon, on Playtrade, and on eBay. And that very quickly took off. And I then started working in local government because that was a quite easy job to run alongside the business. So after a year, I was having a good time in local government, working in efficiency management. And I had a business that was making over £100,000 in revenue, all from a bedroom at my mum and dad's house. And I was like, okay, so I'm sure I can scale this a bit. I started to work a bit harder on that. That then allowed me to buy my first house. I'd literally, when I finished university, I'd had to fund myself for university because my parents aren't particularly wealthy. I came out of university with a debt. The business allowed me to pay that debt off and then save up a significant deposit to then buy my first house. So it was, you know, after after 18 months, I was able to buy my first house. And, you know, I was really kind of moving on with my life. And at that point, I then thought, right, okay, so what else might I want to do? So I changed jobs. I started working with unemployed people, helping them back into work, build the confidence, help them with communication so they could, you know, go to interview and really, like, do a good job of saying who they are, why they're, why they're good for the job helping them look at what they actually wanted to do so they were going for the right jobs for them. And that made me feel that actually helping people is really good. And this is probably not something I want to do for the rest of my life, but it started to make me think about, you know, what do I actually want to do? What difference do I want to bring? And I continued to build the business up, started getting bigger and bigger, and I was still doing the majority of the work, starting to look at how to delegate small pieces and automate and then I had done lots of qualifications. Uh, so I did human performance nutrition, my football coaching badges and strength and conditioning training badges. So I got to the point where I was trying to make myself 
like a, a, an athlete at the same time. So I have the energy to keep working and keep running a business. And then my son, son was born in 2012 at the end. At that point, I started to say to myself, right, I might need to think about maybe not working so much so I get to spend some time with him. But at that point, I then got invited to work for a sports performance agency, which was really interesting. It allowed me to go and work in elite sport, see the levels of experimentation, the amount of money that's spent, you know, a cutting edge of science from lots of different elements, but how you get an athlete to go a tiny bit faster or perform a little bit higher on a, on a weekend. Um, and that made me think, that's great. I get to rub shoulders with some really interesting people. But at the same time, if that money was spent on your ordinary person, you know, it could help millions of people live better, healthier, happier lives. So it did kind of open my eyes in a lot of ways. And just as I was about to kind of really take off in that, I lost the ability to walk and that changed my path completely. Yeah. Yeah. So you had a, you had a very successful road to success and then suddenly this illness hit you and then everything kind of turned upside down and you're like, okay, so what now? Right. Yeah, definitely. And it was like, it was that time where this happened to me over the course of a week and my immune system attacked my joints. So first it, it affected my wrist and locked that in place. But I just thought, oh, I've just used computer too much this week. I'll just rest it. And then a few days later, my knee locked in place. So then I was like, okay, this might be a bit serious. Hobbled to the doctors, got some medication to try and bring the swelling down so they would loosen the joint again. But mm -hmm. then it, it happened to my shoulder. And then my other knee started to go and I was taken to hospital. And just then I was in a hospital bed couldn't move, I couldn't show myself, I couldn't eat properly. And, you know, my son was 18 months old, so he didn't understand why daddy was like, daddy couldn't move, daddy couldn't play. My wife was pregnant, six months, and almost ready to give birth to my daughter. And she was just about to finish work and coming after work to help me shower. It was a really, really difficult time. And naturally, at first, when you go through that, you're a bit like, oh, I'm 29, what's going to happen to me? Um, I can't walk. I don't know if I'm going to get back on my feet. Like suddenly I'm having everyone is looking after me, but only a week ago I was doing everything for myself and I could go and do anything that I wanted. So for the first week I found it really hard, but luckily I was still able to run my business from the hospital bed with one hand. And that kind of made sure that I was still bringing in money so that the family was secure. And I started to feel quite grateful for that. I didn't do a physical job that suddenly I wouldn't have been able to do anymore. And then I started to think, actually, a lot of things I'm grateful for, all these people who are looking after me, the fact I could walk before, like so many people in the world that they can't walk from birth. Like, I've had 29 years of walking and running around and doing whatever I wanted. Maybe I shouldn't be so ungrateful. And then I started to think, you know, I was brought up in the first world. I got free education. I'm getting free healthcare now. I've had the opportunity to set up a business, which some people don't. I've had, you know, a number of different careers in a short amount of time. I've really helped me understand who I am and all these things that have happened to me. I really should be happy and grateful. I shouldn't be lying here and complaining because, you know, I've had a better life than possibly 99% of the other people on this planet. And it's important that I now try and get back on my feet for my family and my daughter's going to be born. I want to be running around the garden with her. 
I want to be playing with my children. I want to be able to walk to the shop. And I want to actually be able to get back and possibly do some sports with my friends. So that really started a period of six months of intensive physio, walking rehab and hydrotherapy to get back on my feet. And lots of those mornings when I woke up, it was painful, it was hard. But I said to myself, you're not going to be able to do it if you just sit there and hope it's going to get better. You need to push yourself out of your comfort zone. You need to be proactive. You need to do all your physio exercises and push yourself that little bit further and really be strong in your mind. No, that actually you want to walk when your daughter's walking and that means you're going to have to sacrifice a little bit now and come up against obstacles, but you can do it if you believe you can. So I had that real strong mindset that I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get back on my feet. So that's what I did every morning where instead of it was, how are you feeling? And then being like, I don't feel great, so I'm not going to do it. I flipped it on its head and said, who do I want to become? I want to be up on my feet walking. What actions do I need to take? I need to take, you know, do these exercises, walk this far, stretch here. And then actually, it doesn't really matter how I feel because you actually feel quite good if you're in line with what you want to be. So if you've got a dream and desire, it's not about how you feel, but it's about the actions that you take. And that actually makes you feel good, even when you're hurting, even when it's challenging. So I kind of went through that process. After six months, I was back on my feet. I wasn't walking properly. Started to cause problems with my back. So some of my lower lumbar vertebrae were starting to compact together a bit, which was very, very painful. Um, so I went back into physio. After 11 months, I walked a mile unaided and I felt like, you know, I'd achieved it. I was there and my daughter started walking a few weeks later and I just felt like if I can, if I can get back on my feet, like what else can I do and how can I help other people to do something similar? Okay, so basically you, I'm trying to understand where, because there are many people in the similar positions who faces these kind of obstacles, you know, and then, you know, I also spoke to a friend a uh, few days before, and he said, you know, he also noticed that, you know, when people get diagnosed with these kind of, you know, illnesses and these kind of things, they give up on life, you know, but, but seems like you didn't give up and seems like you kind of had that motivation to pursue your dreams. And, and, and therefore, my question is like, where did you get it? Was it your family? Was it like that you wanted something bigger and you didn't want to give up on life on 29? Yeah, I think there's probably quite a few different angles to it. So the fact I've been through those mental health challenges and managed to come back and finish university, and the fact that I'd lost my job and my training, but then gone and taken ownership and decided to do that myself. So I think, first of all, if you've been through other challenges and managed to take ownership of those and be accountable to yourself, it helps you when you face bigger challenges in the future. And I mean, we all, we all, when we face a real challenge, have to go through that initial phase of those negative emotions, the grief, the frustration, the sadness and the loss, because that's the human experience. But for some people, they stay in those negative emotions because it's quite comfortable to stay in your suffering, to be there when people are helping you. Because as soon as you start to take that step to get better, people will also come on that journey with you to get better. But 
if you don't take that first step, the first bit of action to do it, and people will just continue to help you where you are. And that's quite easy to just stay there. And in so many ways, like the language that's used by the people you see and the people who are helping you, if they believe you can, and a lot of a lot of the people that I worked with medically at the time said, you know what, you you got ill, but you're in good shape before. We, we're sure that you know you'll stand a good chance of getting back to where you were. So that really kind of like fueled me to think, if they believe in me, then I believe in me too. And also, in many ways, when people are like, you know, you've got a chronic disease, you've got it for the rest of your life, you know, this is you now. It's quite easy to think, okay, well, that's happened to me, and now it's part of me, and it's my identity, and it's who I am. And I'm just going to sit here, take my medication, and hope it gets better. But that kind of, like, hope without action, you never really move anywhere. And I just think that, you know, looking at my children running around and just realizing that I have a real power of why. I want to be playing with my children. I don't want to be the dad who sat there who can't. And my children give me a lot of a lot of power, a lot of motivation. And I just think I spent a lot of time to reflect and think, who do I want to be? What journey do I want to go on? And what like missions do I need to do? And when you have a powerful direction, well reasons why it's easy to see the way up that mountain, even when it's stiff, even when it's icy, even when you've got to climb up that climb up that really rocky peak. And that's kind of what life is like. Like I kind of under, started to understand that your life is a bit like an ECG. It goes up and down in waves and bumps and sometimes it zigzags everywhere. It's never always up. It's never always going to be positive. Sometimes you're going to hit rock bottom. But kind of when you hit that rock bottom you suddenly get incited into action. For so many people, it's either inspiration or desperation that helps you grow. And moving out of that comfort zone and that crisis, it's that suffering that creates growth. And that can quite often help you become much more clearer on what you do want because your options are limited. And when lots of things are taken away, you start to realize how ungrateful you were, how grateful you should be, and that can really change and shift your mindset to becoming more proactive and more like, okay, so I've got this disease attacking me, or I've lost this person, or this is But you know what? It's how I react. I can shape my future. I can't control what's happened because that's in the past. I can look and take lessons, but my future now is in my control. Whatever happens to me, that'll be my journey. And I might be climbing that mountain and fall off the side, get blown off by the wind. But sure as hell, I'm going to go back, walk around and get her back up again. Yeah, there is a huge power in why. And then I can see that you are kind of like really dedicated and you had a huge reason why, basically. Uh, but uh, therefore, my question is like, have you contributed or trying to help like similar people uh, in a similar position as you with this battling this illness? Like, have you invested yourself in like a medical, like after this, like, okay, I want to also help others to have, you know, solution. Yeah. So I, I do some work with charities of the disease that I've got, but also I've done a bit of research and also published a paper through the university of Liverpool about the mindset of resilience 
when you're suffering with disease challenges and that can be seen on my blog i've actually posted it there as well but it's really kind of helpful to put that message out there that you can actually get this disease at any point during your life most people get it when they're older and most people who get it are female so i'm a bit outside the box but in so many ways it's important for people who are outside the box to share their message and i again speak often in both education and in medical establishments about my journey and about how the small little things you can do to really help you get through it and it's about realizing that actually in so many ways what we can't control the disease but we can control how it affects us so I spent a lot of time playing with my nutrition, playing with my sleep and playing with my movement and experimenting for years to find exactly what works for me because we're all so bio-individual. We're all different. We've all got different epigenetic expression, different microbiome, different circadian rhythms, different gut enzyme makeup. Every one of us is a complete unique thumbprint and even twins have different epigenetic expression. So that means that what works for one person, a meal plan, a sleep schedule, an exercise routine, you've got to find your own for you because someone else's guide probably doesn't work that well for you because everyone's different. And I utilize that to find out exactly what worked for me, what energized me, what I could tolerate, what, what stressed me, stressed me out, what drained my energy what really worked for me to get to a point where I'm now controlling my disease and I'll take my last set of medication next week and that will be it then. I'll be completely controlling my disease through lifestyle. And that's incredibly powerful because you start to realize exactly what works for you, what works for your body. You become really in tune with your body and your mind. And that actually makes you feel quite powerful because you start to understand yourself. And so many of us just go through life just doing whatever we want to and never really spend the time to really dig in and start experimenting with our body. Because really, we're just one big experiment. Our body, our mind, our spirit, everything is there to be discovered, to be understood. And all the answers are inside of us. We've just got to dig deep enough inside to find them. Yeah, that's true. Actually, I believe. But by listening to you, Lee, I wanted to kind of ask you this question. Have you thought about writing yourself a book or book about yourself? Because I know that you have you having a book, an ebook, and 80 ways how to find your purpose or success. Is it somehow connected to your life journey? Yeah, so that, that ebook is a lot of the questions that I asked myself to get that real clear vision of what I wanted to be. And I kind of feel that out of those questions, if people are looking for that direction in their life, there'll be a few questions in that book and a few of the exercises that were really able to think, right, this, this speaks to me. And again, communication language speaks to us differently. But I honestly believe that if anyone read that book and then did some of the exercises and answered some of the questions, you would have more clarity. And in so many ways, you can't read your way to clarity. You have to go out there and action. And you don't really find your purpose by reading. You find your purpose by doing and finding out what works for you. But it's a very good indicator of which direction to go. 
So I've started actually writing a book about my journey and that will be published in November this year and it's called How to Conquer Anything and it's based on going through my own situation of my mental health issues, my redundancy, my own walking, but then actually looking at the science behind how to conquer things such as perfectionism, procrastination, how we can conquer fear, our moods and our thoughts and feelings and just looking how we can start to use cutting edge of science and my kind of pleasure and understanding of psychology and neuroscience to start to conquer our own minds because we have the power to do it. It's just we need the actionable steps and that's what our book will be about and how I utilise some of these through my journey and some that will really work for other people. And, you know, in so many ways, I hope that book, book can reach people that I've not been able to reach through my work so far. Yeah, interesting. I, I'll definitely want to read that book and also this book that you, we just spoke about. But maybe there are maybe there are your five favorite personal favorite ways how to basically find your purpose. I know there are 80 different ways, but maybe there are your five, five favorite ones. Yeah, I mean, my five favorite ones are definitely, the, the really big one that stands out to me is when we ask ourselves the, I call it the hedgehog. So we look at it and say, what are our strengths? And we really work to identify where our strengths are. What does the world need? And then you bring those together and then you look and kind of then decide how can you make that into a sustainable business. So it's looking at what your strengths are, what does the world need, and how you can put those together to create something that changes the world and gets you paid. So in so many ways, a lot of conscious people who are looking to change the world say, oh, it's, it's not about the profit, it's not about the money. But to be honest, for me, it's not about the money. It's about the impact. But the, you can make a bigger impact if you make enough money to be able to actually keep, keep doing what you're doing. And if you make even more money, then you can utilize that to scale up what you're doing to impact more people. And the biggest way I describe it quite often to people who are looking at things from a really what the business should be about. I mean, money to a business is like red blood cells to a human. You need it to live, but you don't live for it. So you don't live for red blood cells. But if you've not got enough of them, you'll die. Same with a business. Don't live for the profit. If you've not got enough profit to keep it going around the business and keep your cash flow, like your blood flow, your business will die. And then you won't be able to impact anyone. So it's got to be sustainable. And I think that's how you kind of really dig in to understand you've got to look at what your strengths are, look at what your values are, and really then look, how do you want to bring that to the world? How can you make a difference? And possibly the second one that I quite like is to ask yourself, so you've passed away, you're on your deathbed, and you've gone to another realm, gone into the ground, to another spirit, wherever you think that you will travel to once you pass away. And what do they say at your funeral? What does, what does your family say about you? What do your friends say about you? What does the little old lady down the street who's known you for years but doesn't really know you, know you, say about you? 
And do you want that to be, he made a billion pounds? Do you want it to be, he had a million followers on Instagram? Or do you actually want it to be, he was a really nice guy, he was a good father to his children, he made a difference in the world, he made people happy, he designed something that changed the lives for the better. What, what do you want that to be? If you get an idea of what you want that to be, then you get closer to knowing what you need to do today. And I think that's another big one that we should definitely ask ourselves, or maybe even ask your old 95-year-old self, what would, what, what would your 95-year-old self say about you today? What would he tell you? And it's kind of just thinking. Sometimes you need to go quite far into the future to bring it back and start to think, what do you need to do today to become the man or the woman you want to be? And who do you want to be, Lee? I if if, if you had a chance to be 95 and then say to your now, current, what would you say? I would say, obviously, that <laughs> in so many ways, the 90, my 95-year-old self would be saying you didn't regret anything that you didn't do. You just did it. You were, you were brave enough and had enough courage to do it. And you went out with an ambition to make people happier and you achieved it. And you were there for your family and your children. And you brought something back to society. You 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 gave more than you took. And finally, you stayed in contact with your friends and you actually had fun. You didn't work all the time. But that's what will be that would be my like five things that my ninety-five year old self, if I'm lucky enough to live that long, would say to me. Wise, wise. I, I have never thought about that, you know. I have never thought about living until 95, unfortunately. But, you know, I hope it's going to happen. Oh, definitely. Getting back a little bit to the business. Uh, the first time you reached out to me, you said that you put importance and you believe that there is importance in value and culture, right? Rather than starting with the business plan, cash flow, another more standardized you know, company establishment parts, you put focus rather on values and culture. Why is that? Yeah, it's really important to have a direction in business. And it's not to say that you don't need a business plan and a cash flow forecast and a framework, because especially if you're going for investment, you will need that, the, 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 the finance policy. But in so many ways, you actually need a culture statement a mission purpose and not one of these that could be stuck on a wall somewhere in any company across the world. It needs to be, what is the company's purpose? What do you stand for? Because what happens is that as your company grows, as you would hope it will do, the people who come on board and join you, the company's story, it's why, starts to hit not only the people who work, but also the people who purchase the products or the services, and they start to become like a tribe of people who are with you. They feel that the story, it speaks to them, and they become marketers. They become salespeople for your business without even being employed. And most importantly, it's, it's what happens is as you grow and scale, the message stays firm. The people who come and work for you also jump on that bus with you in the same direction, on the same highway, and everyone's looking forward. Everyone's trying to get the bus to go that bit faster. You start to get some people behind it pushing it as well. 
and you've got all your all your fans at the side cheering you on on your journey. And as it gets even bigger, if you have these values in from the start, they grow organically inside rather than get into a really big business and then having to try and change a massive... It's like trying to change the direction of the buzz to go in the other direction. And it's when you're traveling at 70, 80, 90 miles an hour, 120 kilometers an hour, to have to stop and turn it round and have to go the other way is incredibly difficult, incredibly slow, and takes an awful lot of effort because people are working there with their own mind. They're going in their own direction, really, uh, to make kind of unstoppable teams. Everyone has to be together as a team. Like an like organisation, it shouldn't just be a loose group of people. It should actually be a purposefully driven vehicle for something more you know and it's kind of like again it needs to make profit and you need to pay your investors in fact you need to do above and beyond for your investors because they give you the capital to make it happen but you also need to astonish your employees and have them i mean i, I love the word astonish in english because it actually means etymologically to be struck with lightning and that kind of like lightning bolt up the backside is exactly what businesses need to be doing. So that needs to happen for society. You need to be giving back. You need to be making communities think, wow, this company's great. You need to be doing it for your customers. You need to be thinking, wow, I'm going to buy from them again. What story they've got. What a business. More than a business, it's a story. And now you need to be doing the same for your investors, the collaborators and the people you work with. And also just... In a bigger picture, your employees, they need to feel like it, this is great. And when they feel like that, they're engaged in the work. They're motivated to talk about how good the company is to other people in the industry. Start to attract the best talent. And that just fuels you like to go quicker and quicker to make more and more impacts. And it's just it just binds the company together in a way that you become not just a group, of people with lots of different ideas, but a team who works together, who gets onto the field and plays, they collaborate, everything works, it's functional, and everyone has the place and feels at home. And when people feel part of a team, they work with you, they don't work for you. So, so basically you're telling that, you know, a good company culture is a culture, uh, this is a company that kind of is working as a well-oiled machine. Yeah. It, it kind of, it kind of, you know, it brings me back because the other day I was watching uh, a YouTube video about uh, how Le Leicester City won uh, the English Premier League. Yeah, uh, yeah and this is kind of reminds me of it because I watched, was watching, is like, I was watching like they were down in elimination and then suddenly, you know, they kind of won the whole championship. So it's kind of like this is this is a perfect example of team working together. Yeah, it's that kind of collaboration because when you looked at it, the team under the management before, they, they weren't engaged, they weren't having that experience, they, they weren't playing for each other or something bigger. And they were about to, you know, go down to the division below. And yet a new manager came in, he inspired the players, they suddenly started playing not only for each other, but for the whole team for a bigger vision. And very few different players came in. So it was the same players 
And it just shows that depending on how you have that purpose, how you communicate it, how you get people not only playing for themselves, but playing for the whole team, and then actually playing for a whole vision, you can get them from the bottom to the top in performance and beat other companies who are bigger, who spend more money, who have all the supposedly talented people but are not all working together in the same way. And it's a beautiful example. And it comes across when underdogs have managed to achieve things because they focused and built that team culture where they will work tirelessly for each other. They know where they're going. They have the belief that they can do it. And that then shows when they have to perform, when they're under pressure, when they're in a stressful situation, not only when things are easy, but when things are hard. And again, you don't have to you don't have to invest massive amounts. You don't need to be the richest, the biggest. Sometimes it's better to be a little bit smaller, so the pressure's not there, and you can then be more agile and more dynamic. But if you've got that direction and purpose, and you communicate that, people will people will do amazing things if you believe in them, if you give them the opportunity to be the best they can be. And if you empower them to really start to go for that and they feel like your journey is also their journey, they will put every effort in to make you a winner, to make you achieve the goals. And that really is the power of having employees who are fully engaged, motivated, and they just want the, they want the success of the business as much as you do. The business becomes their business too. Okay. And this and this is described as a good company culture, or is there something else that's considered as good company culture? Is it not like like what there is a one specific like framework? Yeah, in so many ways, it's it's not something that you can go and say this is how you should do it, because every company is different, has different challenges, works in different industries, and has to view things from a different way. I think the biggest way to describe it is that, if anything, a, a, a leadership team should have a direction, they should have a purpose, and they should have that in a way that everyone knows exactly what it means. So from the person at the top to the person at the very bottom to the new person who's just come in, they all need to know exactly what the vision is. But not in a way where it's just given to you as a few words because if you give 40 people a few words they'll give you 40 different answers to what they think it means we all have our own individual perception and perspective on things so really it's not about what your mission statement is it's about how those values are communicated throughout the company and more importantly probably is that the leadership and the management believes in those values and their actions are congruent with those values so they're not just saying it they're also doing it and being it and their actions show that they are in that direction and then employees will be like well, they're not just saying it they're not just telling me to do it they're showing me how to do it they're showing me that they believe in it and that they believe in me and that appreciation in people and the autonomy that they get to empower is what makes your average employee become like a rocket because they just they just they know they can go they have the freedom 
to be innovative. They're not going to be criticised for making mistakes. The managers want them to be the best they can potentially be. And in so many ways, good leaders inspire other people to be leaders themselves, not just followers or people who are just told what to do. And it's about management, again, helping their employees start to think, okay, so how can I solve that myself? Not being the type of manager who's like, oh, I know everything. I'm the hero. Every time my employee messes it up, I can fix it and everyone can see how good I am. But that just means that you get overburdened with work because you're not helping your employees grow. And again, it's about having that coaching style, asking powerful questions, helping people to get the answers out of themselves and believing that you can. And sometimes you've got to listen to your gut and not overthink things and just really work. I mean, a massive thing in companies is the ability to give feedback constructively. It won't always be positive, but when you've got employees fearing the annual meeting that they're going to get told they've not done this and you've not done that, that just makes them close to develop and get bigger. They'll just not want to engage. So it's about creating that open and honest communication where people can say what they feel. People are not afraid to throw their ideas into because so often it's the people on the ground, the employees who are doing the work day to day, talking to the clients, doing the, doing the work, meeting the deadlines. They know what, it's t- what it takes. They do it. It's their life. And they usually have the most, you know, interesting ideas, the most insights and the most re- valuable things inside of them. And yet so many are scared to actually go and say, well, this would be a great idea. I know because it kind of works. They're the ones who should be not afraid to experiment. They should be feel free to do things in their own authentic way as long as it works for them and works for the company. And in so many ways, every company is individual, yet you really need that purpose, that communication, and just the cultural care where people feel like, you know, they're not just a machine. They are given the voice of speaking. Yeah, you want to feel like a person, yeah. as a voice. Yeah, yeah. That that's what I that's what I also like because I I could not mention and I don't know how it's in UK, but in Denmark there is this flat company culture, you know. So you are able to kind of from a lower down go to the higher you know rank of people in a in a structure and uh, and then talk to them and maybe give them some proposal because you know even though maybe you're low working in a lower levels you know and maybe not in management but you're still able to go and you know share your opinions and share your maybe advices and maybe they'll listen and maybe not but they will at least you know take it in consideration to kind of think about it yeah and things are becoming gradually flatter in the uk but there, there are still some institutions where the hierarchical structure there's a lot of levels and people still feel intimidated and daunted to go and speak to anyone above a certain point. And again, that's something that is fostered through the culture where the directors actually come and have dinner with the employees. They actually talk to them. What the, the, the best companies that I found are where the leadership team is able to tell me about some of their employees. They don't need to know everything, but they know the name, roughly where they live, do they have any family? 
And those little touches, your director sends your sends your wife a card on a birthday. Such a little thing to do costs, you know, a euro. But it just shows that you're part of the team. You care. And these people know you. And it's like, yeah, you know, in an organization with 20,000 people, are you going to know everyone? No, probably not. But when you get to the point where you're at that stage, it's then where you individualize and still make sure that teams intermingle, people know each other. And there's almost like social activities where people get the chance to do that and kind of spread the company. And it's just understanding because in so many ways, work is an integrated part of our lives. And the more productive that can be, that increases our performance, but also our well-being. And well-being is massive because if your well-being is not intact, then you're not going to perform at a good high level. You're not going to be very productive. Your creativity will be stifled. And you just won't have the morale and the motivation to go to work and do a really outstanding job. Yeah. You mentioned, you mentioned in the beginning also, and also you just mentioned the well-being and importance of the company. And I could not mention, and one of the listeners also, he wanted to ask you a question. Basically, as an environmental psychologist and a well-being consultant, what is your basically, when you're going into a company, right, what are you looking for? What is the first thing you're looking into? Yeah, so mainly the first thing we're looking into is from an environmental psychology perspective, it's how the employees feel, both in terms of the physical workspace, so temperature, lighting, office layout, equipment, and ventilation, and those type of physical elements, and then how they feel in terms of the mental elements, so how they feel about communication, how they feel about the company's culture, the mindsets that are in the workplace, how conflict and mistakes are treated. So we get a whole picture of the, the psychological and the physiological environment and then use that data to help management understand how they can, in some ways, not spend a lot of money, but improve the environment for the employees. By improving the environment, we also improve the well-being. So environment, the environmental stress of a cold office or a dark office and understanding that actually... Quite often, an office is designed by architects who've been to been for education. So their their design principles are based on what they've learned, not on what people actually need. And they speak to the board, the finance director, the facilities managers about how to design the building. You don't speak to the people who work in the building, and that that disconnect quite often means that it's designed by people who've got very rigid ideas from their education and then signed off by people who just want to know how much money it costs. And then you put all the staff in there and it doesn't work for them. So it's about actually finding some people need different things in their environments to work well. So it's about giving that possibility back to the employees. How do you think it should be designed? You need partitions here. You want to work over here where it's lighter and he wants to work over here where it's a bit darker. Can you get more natural lighting through skylights, through windows? How about the ventilation? How can we change that? The position of the desks and the chairs. Like, do, Where do you want to actually sit? Is it too close? Are you too densely close to other people? 
you've not got your personal space, or are you so far away that you can't communicate correctly? And sometimes it's just really about going in and saying, right, how can we change what we've got to make it better for the workers so it flows better for them? Like they spend the most amount of time in there. So ultimately, their data is really valuable. We then look at the evidence around design and build in the employees' opinions plus the evidence from design to create a more productive workplace. Then the cultural element works on making the psychological environment work as well. So it's about helping leadership and management understand how to build that culture where conflict is resolved in a positive way, where feedback is given constructively, where employees are cared about. And we help the employees with the health awareness around sleep and nutrition and movement. We help foster things such as doing workplace walks and walking meetings so people can get out and get the fresh air, hit the faces, wake them up, get the blood pumping around the brain so that they're more productive at work. And then we can kind of just look at building health awareness through events and doing workshops to help people understand around healthy eating, around mental health awareness, how to communicate to people and look after their fellow employees, and just really how to build a workplace that culturally works for everyone and looking at the fact that everyone's different but how you can empower your employees to take responsibility and have more energy and time outside of work as well as in work it sounds like it sounds like you just told me like all the steps it sounds like a massive project you know like okay somebody made this building you know an archie had made this building and then come you and you say okay now we have to change the lighting now we change the the ventilations and everything. So it's like, what do they do? They just rebuild the building right now? Or, or what happens? <laughs> no, quite often it's more, it's more the internals. So it's about moving what can be moved, what can be changed. If, mm -hmm. if I'm working in terms of a whole new building, then that's always a challenging process. But that kind of design element, I'm brought in for that originally. I need to work with the architects and the boards, the financiers, and the project managers to try and get elements built in based on the feedback of the people who are going to be working in there, but also looking at natural elements because bringing some nature into the office helps with well-being. So you're looking at things like building in plants and trees, looking at ways to design things such as possible water features, and just looking how you can design archways, elements, roofs, and office shapes around natural kind of shaping of designs. So again, that's kind of what you look at and building these things based on evidence. Because so many architects want to build something beautiful, but not functional for the people who are there. And they will say, oh, well, you know, if I build this amazing, lovely glass-fronted, shiny building, everyone will love it and everyone will do really great work. But actually people want something that's comfortable to them. And that works really well for the job, not something that looks nice and shiny. That's and true. You've got to try and, then you've got to try and talk about the people who just want to do it as cheap as possible. And then that takes away the ability to use natural materials and sustainable materials. And they're also like, well, why should we design it for the people coming working in? Because in 10 years, most of them have moved on and got a different job. But it, the environmental design of, of buildings, it has to change all the time. It has to evolve every few years anyway as people change, style changes. You can't just keep it the same. So many people are now working in an office. I was designed 50 years ago. It's not been changed. 
they almost have this idea that well, we'll change it when we move to a new building and we get bigger or we move to a flashier address. And it's like, this is an ongoing process. You need to keep evolving. And that's how you keep your staff in so many ways engaged, happy. And just the fact that you've asked them, how do you want the office to be? We know you work here eight hours a day. How would it work best for you? That just makes people happy. It makes people think, oh, they care about me. They care about my opinion. I can change things here. I can make a difference. And that just gives people that motivation. Then they feel empowered. Yeah, and that's true. Um, it makes me ask a question also, like, okay, you're telling, like, we just went through, like, what happens when, you know, you're working with old buildings and new buildings. Have you thought maybe in the future or maybe the architects or maybe the, the person who is designing those things, investing people like you before they're building a building or making in a, office spaces they're coming to you and say okay maybe you could also come in and then tell us you know maybe how we could uh using the same resources for designing and building this building what is your take into it or input into yeah. it i mean environmental psychology is very new science so it's still kind of settling more is being done and psychological research and opinion is being used more in workplaces and in city planning, town planning, transport design. So it's gradually starting to be utilized more. The big part I'm really interested in that needs to be progressed in the future is using environmental psychology to build homes because our homes are constantly evolving. Like if you take the current situation at the moment, a lot of people are now working from home, yet homes are not built with home working in mind. And if the trends continue to change where more and more people are working from home, then you know home design needs to actually take into account that a lot of people will need some kind of office, some kind of workspace. And again, more and more people are starting to get an understanding that our environments really have a big impact on our performance and our well-being. And even more so now that people have spent the past two months sleeping, working, educating, living, eating, breathing, all in the same space, and realize just how challenging it is to separate those environments if you've not got the separation and the options to partition particular areas off. So people have become more understanding and also part of what we do as well is helping people understand the power of nature. And again, when people have been restricted from going to the park, going to the forest, just getting out there and going to the beach and doing things like that, suddenly everyone is like, whoa, these things are really powerful. We never really thought about it before because we could just go and we'd just go and enjoy ourselves and not think about how useful they actually were. So in many ways, people, or hopefully the culture will be more connected to the power of environments when we come out of the other side of COVID and start to just appreciate the fact that we've got all these amazing things on our doorstep, all this ability to look and design all this research that's coming out and just starting to understand that, you know, we're really complicated, but it only takes a few simple measures. Like the biggest part of my job isn't the research. It isn't all the complex equations. It's simply going into a workplace and asking the employees, how would you like your office to change? And how would you like management to speak to you? 
So you are doing like one-to-one -one interviews with each employee and then, you know, making like discussions, like what would like you to change? Yeah. So it's really getting their, their opinions, their data, because they're there. They're, they're not. What you'll find is you'll speak to 50, 60, 70 people and, and you know, 40 of them will highlight the same thing that really annoys them every day. <laughs> Yeah. And yet, yet again, if they went to their boss and said it, the the management would be like, well, this one guy said he doesn't like this. Nah, we don't need to change that. When you actually realize and you get that data and you put it in a report that says 43 of your 62 staff find this to be a problem, we can change that very easily by doing this. And you give them data. They like data. I'll put it in infographics for certain companies so that it resonates even more with the people because you have to tailor it to the people you're speaking to and understand how they best process it. But in so many ways, it's just quantifying exactly what you need to do. And so often it's simple. I'm not going not telling them to knock the building down. I'm going telling them these few small changes will make your workers happier, will make the well-being higher, there'll be less sickness. And that is just more profit to you. I can almost go there and say, I will, I will give you my feedback if I don't make your employees happier. And it's just so simple. You're just looking at something that's quite often underutilized, and that's your employees know what their, pro what their issues are, what their challenges are, and the little things that they would like changing, both physically and mentally. Yeah, I hope I hope that in the future, people when they are going to be designing and you know investing their resources into like designing a new building or building a new office space, they will you know come to you or come to a similar people who does the same thing that you, and consider also your input and your feedback on on your also things that you maybe have recognized you know that works in the past and would increase the productivity and performance in the future. Yeah, definitely. And, and obviously, the sustainability is a big thing. Mm -hmm. And sustainability quite often trumps environmental design in terms of human health. Mm -hmm. Both of those elements together, both sustainable building, sustainable design, but also human health-based design as well. Yeah. Yeah, and then also, like, one thing I also want to mention before we move into the next segment is that I feel like, you know, since since we moved into those lo this lockdown, we started being more grateful, as you mentioned, for like the nature and the thing that we have, forest, uh, wind, sun, human connection. You know, human connection. That's like a big thing. You know, and now we've been have to adapt to this. You know, new way of living. But you know, it's slowly going back to something that we were living into. But you know, it's never going to be the same as it was. You know, before that. With this, with this, I wanted to uh, also move into this next segment that's, uh, I call it entrepreneurial gram, where basically I have taken a view into your social media and I have pulled down some pictures. Is it okay with you? Ah, absolutely fine, yeah. Cool. Because when I was looking in your profile, it seemed very interesting. At least I looked into Instagram and then and, and, and Facebook and uh, LinkedIn. And uh, the first picture I found with this one, that seems like you are uh, attending or being a public speaker. 
but also there was pictures that I saw that you were also on another side. So there's my question is like, what do you enjoy more, being a speaker or being a person who is being taught new things? Uh, I must say that I probably prefer speaking. I just I, I quite like speaking. And while it's great to sit there and listen and be engaged, I'm always the one who's then sat there at the front asking all the questions. <laughs> so I still get the speaking in. But yeah, I really enjoy going into education and speaking at conferences and just helping people understand, again, about, a bit about my journey and the challenges I've been through, but how that kind of resilience is really important, not only personally, but in business as well. Because you... In, for a company, it's never always going to be up. It's going to be bumpy. You're going to have times when you fail, times when things get hard. And it's about actually being resilient and being agile and finding, okay, so I'm going to be proactive. I'm not just going to let things slide. I'm actually going to think, what can I do to change it? Have that mindset where you're going to say, I'm going to take ownership of the company's problems. Let's see what we can do. So I really like to kind of tell people that's the kind of journey that you need to go on and help people understand elements of environmental psychology and the importance of sleep and good nutrition, and how that actually improves people's lives, but improves people's businesses as well. So yeah, in many ways, I'm very much, uh, I like to take the stage and speak when I can. But sometimes, yeah, I will sit there and listen because I do enjoy listening to other people's opinions and other people's points of view. And there's, there's so much to learn and we have so many blind spots. It's important to be both a speaker and a listener. And basically, another question is like a personal question of mine is basically how do you overcome fear of basically being there in front of the, all that audience and, you know, engaging and staying up on your, you know, speech? Okay, so I mean, I've got I've got a little tip that I can give to your listeners, and this is uh, this is really powerful. This will make them have a good old think. So, Elvis, what do you quite often tell Pete, someone who's about to go on stage and they're quite anxious and they're quite stressed? What would you tell them to do? I mean, I would I would basically I would tell them to embrace and and tell that you know maybe they are the only ones because back like many years ago, I was also like attending a music school. And then, you know, when you had all these exams, it's similar to an exam. So personally me, what I was doing is I was imagining I'm alone. I'm alone in a huge hall and there's nobody else except me. Yeah. So you got this person, right? You just told them that. And then they're getting really stressed out. They're really, really stressing. What do you tell them then? to just be with himself and follow with the script that he had written. Mm, I mean, so it's, hard, it's hard to say, it's hard to say because I'm personally myself, kind of, yeah. that's my biggest fear since I started going to music school, like this, like, you know, sweaty palms, all your wrists are sweaty, everything is sweaty, and you're like, and then a couple of years ago, I was also attending a coffee coffee Wednesdays in one of the schools and they also like they gave me five minutes of speech and and I wrote like a perfect script and I rehearsed it and I remembered it in front of the mirror and everything you know all these fashion type of things how you do it and then I still kind of failed it yeah so I'm yeah, like, that, that happens and quite often people's advice is just ca calm down calm down you'll be all right you'll be fine and 
unfortunately, calming down very, very difficult to do. So it's kind of explaining it. If someone is anxious and feeling very, very nervous about a speech, that is a high arousal, negative emotional state. So you're very aroused in a negative way. You're scared, you're fearful. And to calm down, being calm is a low arousal, positive state, which is the complete other side. It's very, very difficult to move from high arousal negative to low arousal positive. So, so how do you how do you say a person who okay you said stay calm and go in this stage, but person is still you know like freaking out. What do you do then? So you don't tell people to be calm mm. because that takes away their performance energy, and it's all it's also impossible to be calm when you're in a high arousal state. So what you actually tell them is to say to themselves, I'm excited. Because I'm excited is a high arousal positive state. And it's much easier to move from high arousal negative to high arousal positive than it is to move from high arousal negative to low arousal positive. So if you actually say I'm excited to yourself, take some deep breaths and say I'm excited, you'll go out there and you'll find it's much easier to be your authentic self and you'll embrace that energy that comes and it works so well. It's been researched. The people who said, I'm excited, found it so much easier to go and do the speech. They just kept saying to themselves, I'm excited, I'm excited. Because that same sweaty palm, that same jittery, that same like, that's exactly how we feel when we're excited as well. We're both high arousal states. It's just how you frame it. Are you framing it as being fearful or are you framing it as really looking forward to it? And you can trick yourself into looking forward to it by saying you're excited. And there's a few other little tricks as well that I use in the, my little mantras. So when I go speaking, it's connection, not perfection. So I'm looking to connect with the audience, I'm not trying to be the perfect platform speaker. I'm just being me and connecting with the people. And the final one I use is to impress, not, is to express, not impress. So I'm not there to impress them with who I am and what I'm done. I'm there to express my journey, my opinions and who I am. So those are, the, those are the things that I use. And I think that for people who are doing public speaking, who are nervous, usually I'm excited. It just changes your life. You suddenly stop shaking and you're just like, ready. And if you just kind of focus on connecting, it doesn't matter. You probably make a mistake, fumble your words. You might even choke on stage like I've done before and freeze. But it's just, you're able to just go again because you're excited and you're connecting and you're there. You're expressing the authentic version of you. You're not trying to be someone else. As soon as you try to be someone else, you become the second best of them. And that's even if you try, because it, people see that you're trying to be something. People will be like, oh, the guy's trying to be like Tony Robbins. He's trying to be like Gary Vee. He's trying to be like this guy. And you can tell when people are trying to model someone else so much or that they're trying to do hand movements every time they say a word and it just look, they just become looking like a robot. It's just unnatural. 
So it's just about being you, be authentic, be excited, be connected, and express you. Yeah. Okay. So I'll have definitely take these tips from you. Next time I'm going in front of the huge audience and I'll try to definitely connect with them. Uh, at least find the one eye contact I can trust, right? <laughs> be excited or at least chant myself to be excited and uh, express my opinions and all that. Nice. Thanks. Thanks for this. Personal thanks. <laughs> another th another photo was this one that seems like you are in a game show. Oh, and yeah. uh, and uh, first of all, maybe you could tell me what kind of game show is it? Uh, so it's a game show called The Chase, where you come up against the quiz master, the team of four of you, and you get your own individual prize that goes into the team's fund. And then you go up against the quiz master and they answer as many questions as they can in two minutes, trying to chase the amount that you've answered in two minutes. And if people get through the initial round, they get to go into the final round against the, against the quiz master, and then they chase your total. And if they don't get to your total, you win the money to share between you. Okay. I've never been good at quizzes. I have tried many applications like quiz and quiz, and I've tried to... And, and sometimes there is some question and I'm like, did I forget history or did I didn't learn history back when I was in school or what's happening there? But uh, another question that I wanted to relate to the, to the same picture uh, is uh, the corre correlation between the business and entre entrepreneurial journey and the games. Is there any correlation that you are drawing? Um, I, I think the big thing with that is on that particular game show, what happened is on Twitter after it was aired, someone felt that I'd swore I'd used bad language on national TV in the middle of the day. And it ended up in the national newspaper the day after suggesting that I had used bad language <laughs> in, in the middle of a, in the middle of a tea time game show. So, oh my. It was almost, uh, and that went onto the onto all the newspapers in England, and then it went into the Huffington Post, and it got shared quite around a bit. And it's just another way of saying that sometimes the world will just go. The world will just be. It'll go against you. You'll have challenges. You'll go on a game show. You'll win it, which will be great. And the next day they'll be like, "Oh, this guy, he's poor." You have language. He's a bad man. <laughs> yeah, but you got the popularity. You got popular, I guess, right? A lot of followers and all that stuff. Um, well, the thing is, I didn't really share it very much at the time because it was found. It was actually found. I didn't find it. The my uh, my best friend's wife found it in the newspaper and then like phoned me up, and then it just went from there. Uh, but oh. I didn't actually share it much at the time. Because I was yes. like, oh yeah, this, this is this is fake news. I didn't really swear. <laughs> I'm well behaved. But I decided to share it this week. Just yeah. it's four years since I just thought, you know what? Sometimes you've just got to show that you're not people get this idea that, you know, when you're trying to make a difference that you're perfect and that you've got everything together. And mm. yeah, you know, I try my best, but there's times when it's just like you've just got to laugh at yourself a lot. Because that's how you get through life. It's got to be fun. And sometimes you've just got to say, you know what? 
I got myself in a situation on national TV and I put the question out there to, to the people that I work with, the people that follow me. What have you done? <laughs> what mistakes have you made? It's all amazing. Amazing experience, I guess, right? Oh, yeah. I love talking to Lily and I could talk more and more, but you know, eventually we have to reach the end, you know, the finish line of this uh, very inspiring and tr truly, you know, heartfelt story because I really got uh, a lot of takeaways of it. Uh, but here I would love you to suggest to other entrepreneurs as you being an entrepreneur and with this a uh, very inspiring and very, you know, challenging, full of obstacles journey. What are maybe some key activities that you would suggest other entrepreneurs to succeed with their goals? Um, I would definitely suggest that, firstly, you try lots of different roles within your business just so that you get a, an ability to see where you might have some hidden strengths, the ability to see what you don't do so well, but the ability to show that you can actually learn and do things. And then you garner a lot of appreciation when you start to grow the business of where you bring the most value. So where you need to bring other people in to use their skills to help you grow and scale. But when you, when you get to that point where your business is even bigger, you'll be able to look back and realize of, that's what it feels like to be the accountant. And that's what it feels like to be the guy who was doing all the social media. And that's what it was like doing all the marketing because you did it yourself not that long ago. And it's a really great way of navigating your way around a business. So you understand all the different sections because as we well know, you could go to university and do all about those sections at university. But that's like reading a book and hoping you can ride a bike. It doesn't really work like that. In so many ways, you have to go and practice, take action, and learn how they work. And there's a real skill and appreciation that you get when you've worn all those different hats in your business, and you've built it, and you've grown it, and you've learned how to do things. And even for me, I've got, I've got two businesses, and I've had to learn to do a lot of different things. And that's been great for me, great for my own growth as a person. But the second thing I'd advise is, just go out and do it. The younger you are, you can set up a business when you're 18. You can set up a business when you were 60. But the great thing about doing it now is the barriers are low. You can try so many different things. And you don't need to invest millions of pounds. You can go and try and see if you can forge your own life and do what you want. And it's kind of understanding, you know, you don't really find your passion and your purpose by sitting there thinking about it you find it by going out and doing it and in so many ways if you go out and run a business and start doing lots of different parts of that business you start to get an idea of what your passion actually is because you're doing lots of areas and one area starts to speak to you it's like I really enjoy doing this the hours just fly by and then i have to go and do the other stuff that i don't really want to do so it's actually about using that to find what you want I'd say to any entrepreneur in a similar way to me, if you're in your 20s, use it to just test so many ideas. You can fail and bounce back again and again and again. And for every business that you set up, you're probably going to have one that fails. I've got two businesses. I've had one fail. And I've learned more from the one that failed than the two that are running. And that is just means that for me, I've been incredibly lucky. 
entrepreneurialism isn't a simple system that you can go and buy a course on online. It's a system. It really is complex. It requires luck, timing, other people's hard work, knowledge, and a little sprinkle of you on top. And really, the failures give you all that you need to succeed at a future point in time. So don't go back and think, oh, I've messed this up. It's not worked. It's not good. Just take the emotion away, put a lab coat on, think you're in science at school, and just look at it as data to use for the future. Yeah, I truly will agree that entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs is the people who wear many hats and uh, that without without actually putting your your learnings into action, there will be no outcome of it. Definitely. And with this being said, I would love you to share uh, social media or where people can basically look up you and maybe get in contact with you for, you know, improving their on, on uh, environment, on their businesses? Yeah, so my website is leechambers.org and essentialize.co.uk. And you can find me on Twitter at Essentialize and Instagram at Essentialize Coach. And then you need to do like this because you have a logo there. <laughs> nah, nah, nah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. I, I, I'll thank you, uh, Lee, for this very lo lovely and inspiring conversation. I Personally, I got a lot of takeaways out, and I'll definitely know that the listeners and the viewers will get the same out of you. Uh, and um, maybe where people or when can people can may maybe know when your book going to come out, uh, the thing that you mentioned about your life and the journey. Yeah, so if you sign up for my ebook at essentialize.co.uk and you can put a link in the show notes. If you sign up for my ebook, that will put you on my mailing list and you will have advanced access to the book at a reduced price when it releases. Lovely. Perfect. I will thank you. Thank you. I hope you're going to have a productive and inspiring rest of the day and uh, I'll see you the next time, Lee. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, Elvis. Perfect. Thank you for joining me and thanks for reaching me out.